welcome to another episode of Kindness Magazine. Today I have an amazing guest for you that I'm sure most of you have heard of and maybe even follow, the lovely Chef AJ. Welcome to the show, Chef AJ. Oh, thank you, Brenda. I love your beautiful eyes and shirt. You look amazing. Oh, thank you. I love your beautiful eyes and shirt and, hair and <laughs> thank all the you. cool things about you. Beautiful smile. <laughs> it's always lovely to see you. Well, since we're talking kindness, I figured I'd say something kind and sincere. Oh, you are. You are one of the kindest people I know. So you are definitely perfect to be a guest on this show. Thank you. I want to just introduce you to our audience, just in case they're not familiar with your background. Uh, chef AJ, like I said, has a huge following. Obviously, she's a chef. She's amazing plant-based nutrition and food expert. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're known for? Gosh, it depends who you talk to, what I'm known for, because I travel in a few different circles. A lot of people don't know that I do stand-up comedy, for example, so I might be known for one thing in that area. But for your viewers, probably what I'm known for is that I've been vegan for over 43 years, which is longer than I think most people, longer than some people have been alive, that's for sure. Probably my greatest accomplishment was when I was inducted into the Vegan Hall of Fame in 2018 because that meant so much to me. I have this beautiful award. It's a clock that's on the wall and I look at it every day. It's in my office. And I'm also known for creating recipes that are not just vegan, but that are whole food plant-based, specifically without sugar, oil, flour, alcohol, salt. And while that might sound austere and draconian and extreme to people, it's because my history is of one of somebody that was obese until I was 52 years old. So I didn't even lose weight permanently until about eight years ago. And that is probably because a vegan diet, while it's very healthy and it's great for the planet and the animals, there are versions of it that you can do that I was doing for many, many years, the junk food version of the vegan diet that can actually make you obese and, and actually have a lifestyle disease. I had the beginning of colon cancer. So when I got to the True North Health Center in 2011 as a patient, and I learned about things like calorie density and food addiction, and I changed from you know, a junk food vegan diet to a whole food one without sugar, oil, and salt. That's when my health improved, my weight decreased to a point where I don't even think about food. I mean, I think about it when I'm hungry, but I don't obsess about it. And so I kind of know for like, I guess, bridging the gap between whole food plant-based and the food addiction world for people that are suffering from food addictions, but that still want to stay vegan. Because in the non-vegan world, the way they treat food addiction is on a program where they tell you to weigh and measure your food on a plate and and uh, and and yes it's good that you avoid things like sugar and flour but it's 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 way different oh they also tell you you know you can't be vegan if you're a food addict you know you gotta have that animal protein you gotta have oil things like that so i guess if i'm known for anything it's sort of like bridging the gap between food addiction whole food plant-based for people that want to do you know they have both or want to be both or whatever i didn't say that very well but hopefully you understood <laughs> Wow, that was like the totally fast and dirty version of it. I love it that you were able to actually condense that down into like a little elevator speech because I know like everything that you've done is so huge and so vast that it's amazing that you were able to condense it down. And the stand-up comedy thing, I did not know this, AJ. Did you know I used to do stand-up comedy? I didn't know. Isn't it fun? I mean, it's, it's challenging and scary, but it's kind of fun, isn't it? It, I'll just say to you what I should have said to my audiences when I did stand-up comedy, when people now learn that I used to do stand-up comedy, I say, don't expect me to say anything funny because I wasn't the best at it. I don't think it was my forte. I, I enjoyed some aspects of it. 
Um, but I'm a little bit of a perfectionist about the saying everything exactly right, which is something that I think you kind of have to nail. Um, I'm, I'm much better at writing comedy, but when I would deliver it, I was obsessing over saying everything exactly right. I was stressing myself out so bad when the show was coming up that when, by the time it was over, I felt like passing out from adrenal fatigue. <laughs> so it wasn't for me. Yeah. I like to, you know what I like about it, Brenda, is the creative part, like coming up with the material. To me, that's the funnest part, more than even yeah. delivering it. Just when you think of it and it's funny, that, 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 that's fun for me. That's cool because I know a lot of people are just addicted to being up on the stage and getting the attention and hearing the laughs. And sure, that is awesome. Like when you hear the laughs, that is like the validation of like you're doing something right here and you have this connection that you can kind of feel with the audience and you feel like you're sensing their energy and they're sensing your energy. Just it, it's a beautiful feeling. But yeah, I, I agree like that relaxed time when you're just writing stuff and you're just sitting there you're like this is hilarious and you're just kind of coming up with it and riffing on your own no stress no worries about whether it's going to be received well or not yet I, I I enjoy that part better myself also yeah I, I actually like helping other people write their material that's very gratifying for me it's been a whole nother world since the pandemic though because performing stand-up on zoom in some ways, it's a lot less scary than going to the clubs. Well, for, for one, not everybody's drinking alcohol, so the chances of getting heckled are probably less. Yeah. But it's, it seems like a lot less threatening because I always feel like, hey, if somebody heckles me, I just kick them uh, off, you know? <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's really great. And where can people find you online doing stand-up? You know, I do it through different clubs, mostly Flappers and Burbank. The best thing is if people really want to follow me to get on my mailing list, because I, I don't always remember to announce everything to every social media platform. But with my mailing list, I figure people that sign up really want to know what I'm up to. And then when I do a show, I send it out. And it's like basically like $7 these days. And, and you, you can have the whole family watch. It's not like when you had to go to a club and it was like 20 bucks and a two drink minimum or dinner. It's, it's, it's pretty darn affordable these days. That's really cool. I'm glad that they're doing that because I do worry about so many performers that are not having the opportunities that they were having that because of COVID. So that's great that they have found other ways to allow people to still perform, maybe even still make some money at it. So that's awesome. I'm so happy that you're doing that. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I, I enjoy. I mean, I just, you know, because I, I, I just like doing creative things, whether it's taking a painting class and they can't do that right. Well, actually, they're doing painting classes now through 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 Zoom, but I, painting is something I really like to have the teacher right there so she can kind of help he or she can help me with that. But I do I love doing creative things. It's just it's the way it's a fun. I agree, and I think that creativity is something that a lot of people maybe that's why their life feels stale and boring is because they're you know they're spending their lives doing their job and then for their relaxation they may be watching some tv or, or a movie which you know you're enjoying somebody else's creative expression great but i feel like we all need to find outlets to express ourselves creatively and if we don't do that we're going to feel like there's a piece of ourselves that's not fulfilled and so yeah there's going to be like this dryness and dullness to life don't you think I agree. And I think that's why people sometimes use food in, in the place of that, because people say, oh, well, the way you eat is so boring. Well, it's only boring if you're using food as your sole entertainment. 
But when your when your life isn't boring, then food sees it's food is it's food to me. Food, that is such a weird adjective to describe food because to me, food is nourishment, it's fuel. So I don't look at it as exciting or boring. But but people that do suffer from either food addiction or as Dr. Lyle and Dr. Goldhammer say, being stuck in the pleasure trap, they're using food for that to, to fill that need. Whereas that's why I do these other things that are so enjoyable and meaningful and fun. So that I don't even have time to think about whether my food is boring or not, because I'm just eating because I'm hungry and I got to get on to the next class or the next Zoom, you know, so, so there's a saying, Andrew Spudka Taylor, the Australian gentleman who went on an all potato diet for a whole year, lost 120 pounds, reversed his depression and food addiction. He said, make your food boring, make your life interesting. <laughs> I like that. But you know, anybody who says that Chef AJ's food is boring has not tasted anything that you no. have made because I have, I've had the pleasure of having many Chef AJ dishes and none of it would be described as boring in any way. It was all just mind-blowingly delicious. And I think that that's what it's all about is learning how to prepare it. And I like that you do things in a way that's simple so that people can remember and they can do it on their own. And this is what's so beautiful about your cooking classes is that you really empower people to not only get healthy, but to enjoy the journey. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think if it's not so much that my food is boring, but it is much simpler. And if people are really addicted to sugar, fat and salt, they're not going to necessarily like my food right away. But a lot of the recipes they will, though, because most of my work is with the masses. It's not with people that are eating the way I do, because I teach not right now, but when there's not a pandemic, we teach at regular culinary schools. I teach on cruise ships. I teach at spas where people don't eat like me and they generally like the recipes. If anything is missing, what they say is the salt. That is the hardest thing for people, not the fat, not the sugar, because we can replace that. We can replace oil so easily with things like nut seeds and avocado. We can replace sugar so easily with dates and dried fruits and fresh fruit. Salt is hard for people. It's hard for people to either eliminate or decrease it at first. That that would probably be the, the one thing that if, if they have anything to say that they're missing. Okay, so let's talk about food addiction. You were mentioning that that's something that you help people with. And I know that's something that you're well known for. I know you had your own experiences in the past that you can draw from. Let's start off by defining what is food addiction? How does it differ from other types of addiction? I should yeah, so, so yes, I'm not a doctor. I'm not even an addiction specialist. I'm only an expert on myself and then maybe a little bit with the people I work with. So would it be all right if I just, I have this little 10 question quiz that I wrote. It's at the, it's at the beginning of my book. And this is, this is how I ask people to, to look at it. And I go, how do you know if you have a problem with a particular type of food or drink? Please ask yourself these 10 questions and answer as honestly as possible. One, do you absolutely have to consume it daily or perhaps even several times a day? Two, do you feel bad if you're unable to get your fix? Three, do you think about it often and can't wait till you're able to consume it again, even if you just had it? Four, is it difficult for you to moderate your use of it? Five, do you often consume more of it than you intended to? Six, do you often feel shame or regret after consuming it? Seven, do you have physical or emotional withdrawal symptoms when you try to abstain from it? Eight, is it difficult for you to get through even a single day without consuming this substance? 
Nine, does abstaining from it result in any physical or emotional discomfort? And 10, does the mere thought of abstaining from it bring on strong emotions such as anxiety, sadness, anger, or grief? If you answer yes to any of these questions, you may be suffering from a food addiction. Oh, so, you know, so addiction, there is a classical definition in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that doctors use. But for me, it's sort of like when you want to not do something and you can't not do it. You know what I mean? Like, like you'd like to quit smoking or drinking or drinking coffee, but you just can't because not doing it causes more discomfort. So, so I think there's lots of layers for an addiction. The disease itself, food addiction, is not a very good name. It's actually often misleading to people because... You can't be addicted to food or eating. You would die. You have to eat one or several times a day. But I think you can be addicted to particular foods. And the foods that people have the biggest problem with are the refined carbohydrates, sugar, flour, and alcohol. Now, some people can eat them in varying amounts and not have a problem moderating them or be overweight or have a lifestyle disease. But for people, many people, these refined carbohydrates like sugar and flour go through the same refining process as drugs and alcohol. And for us, they, our brain lights up when we eat them. So some people like my husband, he can have a rich dessert, a vegan dessert, like, okay, that's good. And the next day go back to steamed kale. But for people that are sensitive to the effects of these foods, we eat them and it's like Las Vegas, all this, you know, like, like, oh, you know it's, it's a question like, do you like it or do you really like it? And do you want it or do you have to have it? And some of the food addiction experts I interviewed said they should probably call it dopamine deficiency disorder. Because whenever you eat food or to have any pleasurable experience, like sex, for example, you stimulate the production of this neurotransmitter dopamine in your brain. That's, that's how our ancestors knew they were going in the right direction. They got rewarded with these hits of dopamine. And all eating stimulates the production of dopamine, but certain foods, these processed foods, these high fat, high calorie foods, higher than caloric density, they stimulate more dopamine in the brain. And it's, it's like people can actually get addicted to this artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain. And things like sugar, oil, and salt, they actually fool the brain's satiety mechanisms. They cause people to overeat. And again, people vary in their sensitivity. And that's why if you're somebody that doesn't have this problem, it almost sounds absurd or like you, like, I know that it took my husband a very long time to understand why he couldn't have nuts and chips in the house, nut butters, because I just could not eat them when they were there. And at first he said, well, you know, I'll hide them in our 1000 square foot apartment. Like I can't find them. Right. And then when he finally kind of got it, then he started taking them to work. It's sort of like, there are people that can drink alcohol. And if they're not an alcoholic, they almost might not understand why somebody else can't just push themselves away from the bar after one drink because you don't have that problem. And so, and it's not, I, depending on who you talk to, I've had doctors say 17% of the population suffers, one out of seven. So it's not all that common, but I think when you talk to people, it, again, it varies in, it, it, you know, it's like on a bell curve and there's some people that are just more or less vulnerable to this. And I think it also depends on, What's going on in a person's life? If they just got back from a two-week, you know, silent meditation retreat, they may be able to withstand some of the temptation. But if they just were in a car accident, maybe not. So it's it's kind of complicated. I don't think it's widely accepted yet, especially in the plant-based community. There's a few doctors that really recognize it, like Dr. Alan Goldhammer. I believe that Dr. Scott Stoll believes in it, Dr. Joel Furman. But for a lot of the doctors, it's not they don't believe in it, but they're they're doing other things. They're reversing heart disease. That so it's not. On the, on the front burner, if you will, for them. Right, but I like the, what you were talking about, about how it can vary from time to time, depending on what's going on in your life. Because 
I, for instance, I don't think of myself as having an addictive type personality. I have dated people who have had uh, addictive type personalities and I have been to AA meetings with them. I've gone to Al-Anon meetings and I understood what they were going through and understood that that's not what I experienced. However, I have experienced what they experienced from time to time. I have been in a mode where I had to have that chocolate. If I didn't have that chocolate, I was going to freaking kill somebody. And then after I had the chocolate, I obsessed about it and had to have it every day for maybe several weeks. I've been like that with, you know, if I allow myself to have a little, some vegan snack that they have at Taco Bell, I don't know what they put in Taco Bell. There's something addictive. <laughs> and I have to have that taco every freaking day afterwards. So I've gotten to the point to where it's like, I don't care if there's nothing else around to eat and I'm going to starve for the next 12 hours. I will not go get a vegan taco from Taco Bell because I know if I do, I will crave that thing for so long afterwards. So I guess it's like you're saying, some people have different triggers and maybe there's certain things like you say, the salt, fat, and sugar that really trigger it. So how do, how do you differentiate between, you know, when you just periodically have it, like how is there a difference in how you deal with it? If you're not a person who has this addiction problem all the time, but it just comes up for you periodically. You know, I think it's going to depend on the individual and how they're able to manage their life, meaning the things that are important to them, their health, their weight, if that's something important to them. I always tell people, do the least restrictive plan that you can do that will get you the results you seek. And for most people, 100% abstinent program is, is probably not feasible or doable with their lifestyle. But what I suggest to people is at least keep your environment clean. So if you know that there's foods that are landmines, that every time you see peanut butter, you eat the whole jar or a bag of chips, the whole bag or chocolate chip cookies or whatever. It's not that you say, I'm never going to have these foods again, but you could say, I'm just not going to have these foods in my house. If you go out, if you're, you know, and you eat them, you eat them. It's really hard because this is so people just don't want to believe that these foods are addictive. You know, I mean, this is a whole industry is built on these foods. It's called processed food, whether it's vegan or not vegan. It's still the idea that sugar, fat, and salt is addictive. The food industry knew it was. And so they created combinations of food that made them hyperpalatable, that would create a bliss point in the average person's brain that they would not be able to stop eating. And, and if people really want to know about the brain chemistry part, you know, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I learned this from two wonderful books. One is called The End of Overeating by Dr. David Kessler, who was the former head of the FDA. And one is called Salt, Sugar, and Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us by Michael Moss, who is an investigative journalist and Pulitzer Prize winning author. Neither guys are vegan, but they did an expose on the processed food industry, basically saying they knew sugar, fat, and salt were addictive. So they put them together. I don't think a lot of people realize that in nature, you don't find sugar, fat, and salt together in any possible combination. Mm -hmm. First of all, you don't find sugar, fat, you, you don't find processed sugar, salt, or oil. There's no oil in nature. There never has been. There's no oil pond or oil tree. There's olives in nature and flax seeds and things like that, but there's no oil in nature. There's no processed food. There's no iodized salt or Celtic sea salt or Himalayan salt. There's foods that contain a lot of sodium like creams and there's no sugar. There's basically fruit. I mean, yes, you, there's a maple tree that you could tap and get 20 gallons of maple sap and then boil it down to one gallon of syrup. But there really is no concentrated form of sugar, oil, or salt in nature. And we as humans did not evolve expressing those pathways together. So in other words, nobody can ever find a food in nature that has sugar and fat, 
sugar and salt, fat and salt, or sugar, fat and salt. It's not possible. The only thing that comes close is breast milk. But the processed food industry knew about this brain chemistry and they created products that had all three things in high amounts so that people, like they say in Lay's Potato Chips, bet you can't eat just one. And so for me, when I read these books, I was still obese at that time, but I got so angry that somebody, an industry was trying to hijack my taste buds and my brain chemistry for their profit that I stopped eating all processed food vegan. Well, I was vegan already, but I just, even reputable vegan companies, because I said, I don't want that result. And I'm not going to give somebody money to do that. And interestingly enough, when smoking became less vogue and less popular, guess what the tobacco industry did? They bought up all the processed food companies. So again, if somebody eats some vegan junk food, are they going to drop dead? No. Is it healthy? No. Some people might be able to do as Michael Pollan says, treat treats as treats. But we have an obesity epidemic right now. And over 70% of people are overweight or obese. So for some of those people, if they would rather not be that way, these foods may not be the best choice for them. And it's hard to convince people, especially, you know, when I speak at VegFest, not to eat all that vegan junk food because it's absolutely delicious. It's hard to get, you know, fruits and vegetables, a tough sell. There's no money in broccoli, I've always said. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it's very interesting. I've read some books on this too. I read a book on excitotoxins and I was reading a book not too long ago about diabetes. I can't remember if it was Dr. Bernard's book or whose it was, but I remember the discussion about the lack of fiber that's in so many high sugar foods. And I was thinking about sugar cane because I used to live in Hawaii. And I remember being a kid, even getting sugar cane and you gnaw on that thing. That's a lot of freaking fiber that's in with all of that sugar. And so that's the way it occurs in nature. If you can chomp through that and get that fiber, that's going to make that sugar release into your system a lot more slowly than if you just suck the sugar out of it, which is what they do. And it's, and also what you were talking about with oil, that you don't, you don't find an oil pond in nature. I love the way that you put that, that it's, a, it's an extract. This is, these are fragments of foods. These are not whole foods. So when we talk about a whole food plant-based diet being the healthiest diet that you can eat, that's what we mean is that you don't eat things that are a portion of a food that don't have the entire, nature created this amazing system where if you know, you're gonna have a coconut meat, you're gonna have the fiber that comes with the, you know, the oils that are in it or like the, the olives, like you were talking about. If you just extract the oil out and you don't have the fiber, you, you, your body reacts completely differently to it. And also there's other uh, phytochemicals that were in there that were supposed to help your body digest and enzymes and things. They're now missing and now your body is gonna suffer because you're not eating a whole food, you're eating a fragment of, the, of a food. Yeah, absolutely. Fiber is so key. I love fiber. It's, I actually have a t-shirt that I got at one of the PCRM conferences and it says fiber is the new protein because fiber is important to every bodily process. It helps flush out waste products and cholesterol, but where weight loss and food addiction is concerned, fiber actually tricks the brain into thinking it's full on fewer calories. And you're so right. If there's not fiber in it, it's not a whole food. And guess what categories of food have no fiber? animal products and processed food. There's no fiber in each of those. And Americans eat something like 92% of their calories from animal products and processed food. And I got to tell you, I have met vegans that eat 100% of their calories from processed food. Yes. So it's not healthy. You won't have the satiety. And, and, and that's that's what makes it addictive. Like you mentioned, if you, if you launch a piece of sugar cane, that's not a problem. 
The problem is in the refining. And that's why for some people, sugar and flour go through the same refining process in drugs and alcohol. That's what makes them addicted. People don't get addicted, you know, to whole, whole grain, you know, uh, quinoa or to, or to sugar beets. It's, you know, beet fiber and vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals and antioxidants, but you process them into beet sugar and now 1800 calories a pound, nine times more calorically dense. They got rid of the fiber. They got rid of the nutrients. You know, think is, I mean, I think whether people consume cocaine or not, it, most people would agree cocaine is pretty addictive, but the cocoa, the cocoa leaves that it comes from really are. Those were leaves found in nature. And when workers would find them, they would chew on the leaf. It would be create a mild stimulant effect, such as drinking a cup of coffee, but they didn't get addicted to it until they started refining it into the white powder we know as cocaine. Same thing, you know, I have a dressing, a salad dressing recipe in my new book, On Your Health. It's called lemon poppy seed dressing. There's two tablespoons in it. I don't have a problem with poppy seeds, but the opium plant, when, you know, the poppy plant where opium comes from, when you process it into opium, all of a sudden it's a whole nother ball of wax. And so the, the problem has come from the processing of the food and not even like you say, the whole foods. When you process a food, you make it calorie rich, nutrient poor, you increase your ability to overeat on it. And for those that are sensitive to food addictions, it's going to create a lot of uh, pleasure in your brain, more maybe more so than other people. And it's going to be very hard for you to moderate your use of it. Let's talk about chocolate since I brought it up as being something that I have had an addiction problem with. I know that there are many things that I think about nowadays. I know that it's very hard to get a chocolate that is grown or harvested in a way that doesn't cause harm. Um, so we can talk about that a little bit. And um, then also, you know, there's chemicals that are in chocolate um, beyond just the fat and the sugar that are uh, make you feel good, release those uh, endorphins. Um, and so again, it's, it, it is very similar to cocaine. When you get that little bump, um, you crave it. You want it again. You want that good feeling, you know? So what do you, well, first of all, let's talk about the problems with chocolate. And then let's talk about like, what do you recommend to people who have a chocolate addiction? Like how to deal with that? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned chocolate when actually it is the number one crave food in the world. It's number one. Number two is pizza. And think about what pizza is. It's cheese, which is addictive, the crust, the bread, which is addictive, the marinara sauce, general, or the pizza sauce has sugar in it, which is addictive. Usually there's some kind of meat on top like pepperoni. So chocolate always comes in number one. And there is an interesting story. Well, actually there's a couple of interesting stories around chocolate, but they did a, a, a study with people that were self-professed chocoholics. And this had nothing to do with weight or anything, but they brought these self-professed chocoholics into the research lab and they offered them unlimited access to every kind of candy cake, cookie pies and ice cream, whatever they liked that was chocolate. And, and then before they unleashed them on the buffet to, to, to study what they were saying they were gonna study, they the investigator gave them an injection of a drug called naloxone. And naloxone is a drug that's used in the emergency room if somebody were to pre present, say, with a heroin overdose, it blocks the blood-brain barrier so that person won't die from that overdose. So they have this injection and then they go out to the buffet and these are self-professed chocoholics and they gotta have that chocolate and they gotta have this kind of chocolate and they looked at the buffet and they found whatever their favorite thing was and they picked it up, they had a piece and they put it down they had no more interest in eating chocolate. Wow. 
So what happened? Did the chocolate cease to become delicious tasting and creamy and rich or something was happening in the brain? And that to me is the most interesting part about the food addiction is what is going on in the brain. You're right. Chocolate is kind of a drug. That's why so many people like it. It makes you feel good. It's got all kinds of chemicals. Like uh, it's got caffeine, which by the way, people love caffeine. It's got theobromine. That's why one of the reasons they always say, do not give chocolate to a dog because it's so dangerous because of those chemicals. It can actually uh, kill them. So I think people have to understand that they, they eat, they gravitate towards certain foods because they make them feel good right here, right? And chocolate also, by the way, has a very high caloric density. It's 2,500 calories a pound. Vegetables are about 100. Fruit is about 200. Starches, potatoes, rice, beans are four, five, 600 calories a pound. So remember, I already said before, the higher the caloric density, the more dopamine is released. That's a pretty high calorically dense food. It's almost as much as nuts at 3,000 calories a pound. And most people that have a problem with chocolate are not just having, you know, a little bit of raw cocoa powder, like sprinkled on their kale. They're blending it, mixing it in combinations with usually very other high fat foods and very high sugar foods. And so you get a, you get a big whammy from it. And, and I know it was very hard for me to give up chocolate. I, I was fortunate that it turned out it was the source of my migraine. So I haven't had chocolate. I can remember the date, November 7th, 2010 was the last time I had chocolate. And I found out from my doctor that chocolate is high in something called histamine and that my migraines, that I had to stop all the high histamine foods. He, the doctor actually wrote on the prescription pad, do not eat chocolate. And that actually made it a lot easier for me, like having the guy in the white coat say, you cannot have this. But the thing is, is my insurance company wouldn't pay for my migraine medicine. It was $30 a pill. So that was kind of an incentive. But now that I'm off it, I don't miss it. But, you know, it's hard, especially women, especially because something happens around their menstrual cycle where like you give them chocolate or, or they'll die. So, you know, I don't know what to say because I don't think it's necessarily a horrible food. It has antioxidants. It comes from a cacao bean. It comes from the, the cocoa nib, which is actually a seed, believe it or not. And it was actually used for currency way back when in the Aztec civilization. But most people aren't chomping on that little bean. They're processing it. And it, it, it's very hard because it's, it's, it is so luxurious and it's so delicious. And, you know, some people try to do carob instead. It's, it's a substitute without having all those stimulating chemicals. It's not quite the same taste, but, you know, I don't have to tell people because, because people that love chocolate just do not want to give it up. That is for sure. Yeah, that's what reminds me of coffee because I know my partner, Brian, he loves coffee. Every morning he has to have his coffee. And so, like I said, you know, he and I, we don't have a problem with our weight. We eat really healthy, but I feel like I, I can understand some aspects of food addiction because like I said, I've had my experience with chocolate. He definitely has his experience with coffee. I think we all have had some experiences with something that we felt like that we couldn't live without, at least at one moment or another. And it's, it's great to have these uh, moments of clarity when we're not in the throes of, uh, of desire for the thing to, to think it out ahead of time and say, what is making this happen? What, what can I do to be more sane in the future when this sort of thing comes up? What can I do to be mindful and to make healthier choices? And yes, there are, like you say, substitutes, like there's a carob for the chocolate. There's you know, all kinds of things for the coffee, the chicory, of course, you can have decaf, you can have tea. And for, for some reason, none of that cuts it for Brian. He's got to have the real stuff. And he'll try to mix it in with a little decaf and 
and he'll take it down to where he's almost all decaf for a while. And then all of a sudden he's back with the adding in the caffeinated stuff again. And he just feels like he can't be productive with his work day. He can't get, get his mind in gear. Uh, and, and then whenever I say, well, why, you know, is this the caffeine, you know, and, and you know, do you feel bad? Like you're addicted to this? And he says, oh, it's the taste. It's the whole. No, it's not the taste. I promise you it's not the taste. If it was the taste, he could drink dandy blend or, you know, that is not true. It is an addiction, but it's so, you know, here's the thing, all these addictions that people have now, and maybe so much not smoking, smoking is getting shame, but drinking alcohol, drinking coffee, you know, eating processed food it's readily available socially affordable it's it's very inexpensive and everybody's doing it so if everybody in our population is doing it how can it be bad have you ever gone to the airport the longest line is always starbucks or coffee bean and tea and tea leaf most people in this country cannot function without their caffeinated beverage in the morning and a large segment of them can't function without their alcoholic beverage at night you know yeah so what do we do to just um you know, I always say be more mindful about what you're doing and plan ahead. And uh, would you add to that with uh, certain tips? I mean, I think that the 12 step program, for instance, is amazing. I, how do you feel about the 12 step? Yeah, program? I, I think I think if it works for people, it, I, I think they have to do what works for them. But first of all, most people don't see this as a problem. Most people think me as the problem, like I'm the weirdo, like what kind of person doesn't drink alcohol? You know, what kind of person doesn't drink, you know, it's hard enough being vegan, but when you're unprocessed and whole food, people look at you like you're the freak, because like I say, we're living a culture of addicts that don't even know they're addicts, like Brian, for example, you know? And, and so first of all, it's like, it's that, that old joke, how many like, how many psychiatrists says, how many uh, psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, only one, but the light bulb has got to want to change. So first of all, most of the people don't even acknowledge that they're addicts even I mean I, this is so funny there's a movie that really inspired me I think it was in 2012 when I really was learning about food addiction and it's it's called Flight with Denzel Washington one of the best films ever one of his best performances I would love to meet the writer just because that movie just uh, just it was so good the thing was it was the same year as Daniel Day-Lewis was nominated for Lincoln and he won but I'll tell you this was one of his best performances he Denzel played an airplane pilot named Whit Whitaker I think it was and he was a, an alcoholic and a cocaine addict and the plane crashed but it didn't crash because it was he was a, I'm ruining this movie for people sorry it's been out for like eight years so you know but the, the point was is it didn't crash because he was under the influence it crashed because there was a malfunction actually in the plane but the fact that he was under the influences that's against the rules for the FAA you know you could be fired you could go to jail and so he um he had this testimony that he had to give and the, the point was is throughout the movie his girlfriend is trying to help him you know his his family is estranged because you know he's clearly this cocaine and addict and alcoholic and they're trying to get him into rehab and he goes i am not an alcoholic i am not an alcoholic i just choose to drink and it's like you know like the old shakespeare line we think thou doth protects too much and it's like brian like i'm not addicted to coffee i'm not addicted. i just i just like the taste this is what addicts say you know they'll find other things 
things to say about that. Nobody wants to be considered an addict. People do not like that word at all. That's why I wish it would, for food addiction, they'd come up with another word so people wouldn't feel embarrassed or ashamed that they have it. For me, when I found out that food addiction existed, I was like over the moon empowered because it's like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. My brain was wired so that, that the, the, I can't resist these foods. I thought it was very freeing to find out that I was a food addict because then all I had to do is abstain from the foods that I was addicted to. And then I recovered, but people don't like to be called an addict, even if they are. Well, there is a stigma. And I think that that's why I like to say, even for people who don't consider themselves to have an addictive personality, that you probably had that experience at one time or another, where you really crave something and you really felt like you had to have it. So I think that the more that we feel like we can understand one another and have empathy uh, and not look down on anyone and say, oh, you're this you know, dirty addict. You, you crave this thing and you can't control yourself. It's like, well, what human being hasn't ever had that experience? Not to downplay the people who really have it and say, okay, you should be able to just give it up like I did. But, you know, just the fact that we can have empathy for one another, have a little bit of understanding and say, okay, well, this is what worked for me. And how can I help you? How can I try to understand you more and listen to, well, for me personally, I'll just say that when I, for instance, I used to uh, drink quite a lot and I don't drink at all very much anymore. And I realized that I would drink more often when I was unhappy. And it wasn't like I was sitting at home drinking a big fit of scotch or anything like that. I was actually going out with friends and enjoying a glass of wine or two. But I noticed that I would do that more and I would choose to order the wine at the restaurant rather than something else. You know, now I just get like sparkling water with a, a wedge of lime, the total teetotalers drink. Um, but yeah, I used to, to find myself doing that more often and I started questioning myself, why did I do that today? What's going on with me? Oh yeah, I'm upset about this or that thing and I'm trying to escape it. I don't wanna think about it. I'm trying to make myself just relax and have a good time. And then I realized, okay, well, I actually just made things worse because now maybe I have a little bit of a headache or maybe I didn't think very clearly for a few hours there while I had that buzz. And now I'm in you know, a situation that I have to further unpack and further deal with. And it, you know, it's like they say, it doesn't solve anything. You just kind of, you're, you're delaying and maybe even making the problem worse when you're seeking out, whether it, you know, it's food as your source of, of addiction, some people just go and watch TV. Some people play video games. Um, so, you know, it can be sex. It can be gambling. It can be so many things that you do to try to escape your problems. And then in those situations, realizing that the addictive behavior is really a symptom of the larger problem, which is an unhappiness with your life that you're not dealing with. And so really the healthier way to live your life would be okay, I'm feeling something right now. I'm feeling uneasy, discomfort. Um, I'm unhappy about this situation or that. So I'm going to seek out healthy ways to solve that problem. You know, maybe I need to make some, some major changes in my life. Or if I'm in a situation that I can't change at the moment, maybe I need to learn how to breathe and relax and, you know, uh, do some, some things to find peace no matter what's going on around me, which is why I'm really into meditation now. And I find that finding healthier outlets, you know, it can be exercise, it can be talking to a friend or a loved one or a psychiatrist. 
those sorts of healthier outlets for dealing with problems might make it so that that addiction has less of a, of a grasp on you. Do, do you yeah. agree? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And also I wanna say that even if people don't struggle with food or alcohol, there's a huge issue right now with technology. There's a huge technology issue. I, 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 I thank God for that movie on Netflix called Social Dilemma because it really helped put the nail in the coffin for me wanting to get off Facebook entirely. I was already kind of off anyway as a, a personal page for five years, but now I don't even want to be on it anymore because I, it is just such an unbelievable addiction. iPhones and you know in, now it's Instagram and who knows what you know TikTok and I, I don't even I've never even gone on TikTok. Believe me, I don't want to. Just. It's just crazy that this is what's happened to the world. We, we, we have an attention span of a gnat now. We're raising children. They can't even talk to each other in person. So to me, that's even almost a bigger deal than food addiction, the, the generation of kids that are being raised on, on this technology. Absolutely. And again, it goes back to, you know, dissatisfaction with real life. What, what is it that uh, you're not... So you're feeling uncomfortable in social situations. I know a lot of people say they feel more comfortable making friends through video games, that they're talking to them on their headsets while they're playing the game. I actually know, and you probably know them, uh, Derek Treesize and his wife, Marcella, they met through uh, playing World of Warcraft together. And so, I mean, I guess that does happen. And, you know, I've heard of people meeting on Facebook and, and that sort of thing. But for the amount of time that most people spend on those things, they're actually cutting off real relationships that they could be having with people in the real world. And most people are not connecting with somebody that they're going to then meet up with in real life and then develop a real relationship with. And so that is going to be a real problem in our society, especially for young people, you know, to be able to carry to carry out normal lives, especially when if this pandemic ever ends and we have people have normal jobs again where they're interacting with the public. If you don't feel comfortable with interacting with other people, you're going to have a real problem holding down a job. You're going to have a problem um, taking orders from a boss and understanding how to interact with your underlings and your colleagues and explaining things to them in a nice way. I think people can be very, you know, sharp and coarse when they're uh, communicating online. That's another thing is like uh, courtesy and kindness tends to go out the window and people don't realize that this is in black and white. This is here forever. You know, so if you're writing things to other people and you're, there's no kindness in it, this, this is how you are going to be represented to the world in perpetuity. So, you know, I, I always recommend that people be very careful about what they're writing, you know, no matter what is going on or what has been said to you, always respond in the nicest way possible because that is going to represent you forever. But there's so much of our, um, our ways of interacting with each other in a kind and courteous manner uh, has been er being eroded because people are losing the ability to do it because they're not practicing it enough. And, 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 look, and look how they, they, first of all, they don't, a lot of times even on these social media sites, they're not even using their name or their own picture. And it, I mean, that's the stuff they write. You talk about, it's, it's the opposite of kindness, you know? And it's just, it's, it, I, I just, I long for the days of, you know, class. I, we, we seem to live in a world that is missing the class that it had when I was growing up. You know, like, I'm not even talking about before my time, like Cary Grant, that kind of class, but just, 
just just common decency. You know, the things that people say about each other on, on Twitter, these wars and on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram, would you ever walk up to somebody and tell them that? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think most people would, but you know, there's just no rules of behavior anymore. Right. No, I agree. And it's coming through, you know, even some people are becoming more coarse in their text messaging. And even though, like you say, you wouldn't say to somebody's face, you're texting it to them. And it, it is insidious to see how many people are catfishing and they know that they're going to be doing and saying some really horrible things that they don't want to have repercussions for. So they're creating a fake persona so they can go out into the world and sow all kinds of discourse and evil and the things that they do and say. It's, you know, it's, it's really sad because we, yes, we have people who are purposely doing this with troll farms in places like, you know, Russia and China coming to try to undermine our democracy and to try to divide us. But there are plenty of Americans who are undermining our culture as well by choosing to take on uh, fake personas and then going out and um, reacting, reacting and reacting, as you mentioned, with no kindness whatsoever. So this, this is why I wanted to, you know, call what I'm doing here Kindness Magazine is because I feel like right now, you know, and, and I guess, I don't know if there's ever been a time where the world didn't need kindness, but I just constantly feel like, gosh, this is what we need more than anything. It's a return to this, this value that is, a, it should be uh, just so easy because it is the prevailing value of every religion, of every philosophy, of everybody who claims to be a decent human being is to live your life in a way that's kindness, to behave in a way that's kind. And we, we just can't get away from that. We need to keep reminding one another that kindness is important, you know? <laughs> it absolutely is. And, and that's what to me what veganism is. It's, it's really kindness, kindness towards animal life, human life, and planetary health. Absolutely. Well, that's very well said. I guess I will leave it on that note because it was so well said. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today and for discussing food addiction. It's, it's such an important topic. And tell us a little bit about some of your books so that if people want to learn more about you, what you're doing, tell us about your websites and social media. Sure. Thank you. Well, I, I didn't grab my first book, Unprocessed, but my second book, which was a bestseller, thanks to all the kind people that bought it, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, is, I think, a very good book with over 100 recipes. And a new one just came out with Glenn Merger called On Your Health with lots of yummy recipes. I'm working on my fourth book. It's available ebook, but it's not completed hardcover date with dessert. I have all kinds of groups that I, not all kinds, I have two. I have one called the Ultimate Weight Loss Program, one called Feel Fabulous Over 40, where we just support people in their efforts towards managing their food addictions and weight loss. And I'm on, my name is Chef AJ, so you can find me on Facebook as Chef AJ and then uh, YouTube Chef. That's where I really like to interact. That's where we had our nice conversation is I do a daily show on YouTube called Chef AJ Live, sometimes multiple times a day, where I just interview really interesting people that are doing kind things, that are doing good things in the world. And uh, Facebook, I said, uh, so Twitter and Instagram, The Real Chef AJ. But my favorite place to interact with people is YouTube because of this live show. I, Even though I can't see them, I get to to, to communicate with them every day. And generally they are very kind people. Once in a while we get a troll, we kick them off, but for the most part, they're very kind. Well, I really love your show. You've had so many amazing guests and so we can't recommend it highly enough. So definitely check out Chef AJ on YouTube, check out all her websites, get all her books. They're all amazing. Her recipes are phenomenal. They'll blow your mind. 
So uh, again, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate uh, having you and wish you all the best in everything as you continue on. Uh, thank you, Brenda. Please subscribe and ring the bell to stay up to date on our videos. If you are not already subscribed to our magazine, you'll find the link to do so in this video's description.